Hey folks, Justin Bishop here again. We hope you enjoyed our Cinema Shock Rewind episode from a few days ago where we republished our 2020 episode on Bruce Lee's Game of Death. In a few more days, we'll be releasing our Once Upon a Time in China episode, but before we do that, we want to offer you another refresher with a look at yet another film whose history ties in heavily with the story of Once Upon a Time in China. This time, we're reintroducing you to our coverage of The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, a martial arts film directed by Lao Kar Lung and produced by the legendary Shaw Brothers Studio. As with Game of Death, we think that the story of The 36th Chamber of Shaolin and the story of the Shaw Brothers Studio will provide some important context for our listeners when they go to listen to the story behind Once Upon a Time in China. So while it's not necessary really for you to listen to this episode to enjoy the Once Upon a Time in China episode, I really do think that you'll enjoy the way that these histories kind of tie into each other and kind of overlap. Like with Game of Death, 36 Chamber of Shaolin was released as part of our Six Degrees of Kill Bill series where we discuss the films that directly influenced Quentin Tarantino's film. So if you dig these episodes, these older episodes, maybe you hadn't listened to them before, maybe this is your first time listening to them and want to listen to them in that context, you know, head to cinemashock.net, look for our series on the Six Degrees of Kill Bill, and check out the other four or five episodes in that series. Uh, now on to the show. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Just a, uh, it's just a YouTube video that's a bunch of kung fu sound effects. Oh, I thought you were gonna play like music from the show, and it, the first sound effect you used sounded like farting underwater. <laughs> it that sounds oddly personal. Well, I mean, I've farted We've underwater. Don't pretend yeah, like you it. have it. I'm doing it right now. It's like you've you ever been to a public in the bath. <laughs> Todd's in the bath right listen, now. Listen, listen. You don't know true podcasting until you do it in the bathtub. People get like, like bit out of shape about gender neutral bathrooms all day long. And I'm like, public pools have existed for forever. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've all That's been using point. the bathroom together. Anyway, well, hello and welcome to the uh, Cinema Shocker. It's no. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Cinema Shock. It's a podcast where we uh, dive deep and discuss all of your favorite cult and genre films, bring you all the information that the other people won't. Like, did you know that Gordon Liu was a severe racist? And he hates <laughs> white people. I don't, I don't think that's true. Is that that's true? not true. <laughs> but it was the only example I could think of right off the top of my head. <laughs> oh, you're just, we're just making up rumors now. Why are seems like a lovely man. Why are other podcasts holding back the info? Why would they do that? Uh, because of the deep state. Uh, uh, something about the deep state, I think, is, is the way that, that story goes, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. 
I was listening to the RZA commentary on. Oh, and, fun. Uh, it's uh, it's him and uh, I forget the other guy's name right off the top of my head. But anyway, uh, the Giza, the Giza, <laughs> Master Killer, the, Giza. Not the Giza. ODB. It's not another Wu Tang member. Oh. It's like Andy Klein, I think, is his name. That's a hard Plus, street. That's a hard street name. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny here because there's like certain points where you can tell like uh, Riz is saying things that Andy Klein can't say. He's like, we got a guy in my neighborhood and we call him Sad Tay. Because, you know, he's like all bald. He's got the slant eyes. Like wow. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm like, wow. Riz is going hard on this, but I, I mean, I don't know. It just, uh, I, I hope I don't get in trouble for just even, I was quoting Riza. That's why. Well, <laughs> technically we haven't really started the podcast yet. So <laughs> if you needed to edit it out, you could, cause you've said, well, hello, but you've yet to introduce yourself. Oh, Hey, I'm Gary Horde. And I hey, promise I'm, I'm just fine with Asian people. <laughs> just fine. <laughs> and I am, I am, Gary's reluctant co-host, Justin Bishop, and we are joined today by resident martial arts expert here on the podcast. Oh, oh boy. I mean, compared to me and Gary, honestly. Uh, okay, okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Writer, comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Welcome hey. back to the show, everyone. Hey, everybody. This is week, um, week five. Five. Five, yeah, five. This is episode five of our Six Degrees of Kill Bill series, where we are discussing many of the movies that... Uh, that heavily influenced Quentin Tor- Tarantino's Kill Bill. I don't know why I stumbled over all of those words, but I did. For some reason, I said. What's the for some reason I almost said. For some reason, I almost said Quentin Quarantino. That makes sense. <laughs> That's what my brain wanted to say. Which I, I feel think like is there a, is there is likely a, an Instagram profile. Uh, yeah, it's there. a meme account. It's okay. It's a, <laughs> <all right. yeah. laughs> say, there's got to be some social account with that. It definitely account. is. Anyway, so this is week five, and it's. Uh, this is the week where we, I mean, this, I guess we've already talked about Kung Fu movies, but this is a completely different type of Kung Fu movie oh, yeah. than what we talked about last week with Game of Death. So I, I think it's really fun that we're kind of talking about these back to back because you can kind of see the contrast between the two. And honestly, it kind of shows you what, you know, we talked about Bruce Lee last week, what he was doing that was so different from what so many other Kung Fu uh, studios were doing. I was, well, and I was also a we get to talk about, about the we get to talk about the film uh, rather than how bad a studio fuck fucked everyone. it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I yeah, that was my thought process. It was just kind of like I because I hadn't seen this before, and I was wondering like, you know, death was pretty bad. Is this going to be another? You know, am I going to have to like muscle my way through this movie? But it's pretty dope. Pretty yeah. awesome. It is. <laughs> it's really yeah, I agree. It is. It is pretty dope. So if you've seen Kill Bill, and hopefully you have, if you've, you're watching this series or listening to this series, rather, and if you haven't, then, well, in about two weeks, watch it along with us. But if you have seen it, then it's very clear from those opening frames of Kill Bill that one of Quentin Tarantino's major influences is the kung fu movies that were produced by the Shaw Brothers studio. The Shaw Brothers logo is literally the first thing that you see on screen when you click play on Kill Bill. So this week, we're going to discuss what is probably the most famous of the Shaw Brothers kung fu films of the 70s. There are literally hundreds of these to choose from, so we chose this one because I really do think it's probably the one that is the most well-known. And it's also one that stars an actor who appears as not one, but two separate characters in Kill Bill. So today we're discussing, from 1978, the 36th Chamber of Shaolin. Do men have a right to say what they believe in? Or must they always do what the government says? 
was a hero. Shaolin techniques could be taught here. The people could use it to fight the Manchu troops. I nearly died getting a shower. I won't leave now. That See, was more of a Bruce Lee noise. That you yeah, made. sorry, I'm so. Yeah, I was with there, but I didn't because I'm classy. <laughs> but I've already, uh, I've already. Uh, you already used... talked about slanted you... eyes. I was about to say, I've already used things like stuff. that, Gary. You don't need to dig yourself any deeper. <laughs> I've so, already hit my deductible Asian slur <laughs> today. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, for most of our listeners who have heard of the Shaw Brothers, if you if you're familiar at least with the name of the Shaw Brothers, then you know that probably that their name is synonymous with these types of kung fu movies. This is not the only thing they made, but it's what they're famous for, at least internationally. Uh, but by the time the Thirty Six Chamber of Shaolin was released. This studio had already been around for more than half a century. They were no, by no means a new studio in the 1970s. The Shaw Brothers studio was originally named Unique Film Productions. The studio was founded in 1925 by the Shaw Brothers, who are four actual siblings. I think there were actually six siblings overall, but four of them. It's Mario, Luigi, Wario, and Warigi. Is War- <laughs> that, that's that's those, it. Those are the four. Are you reading my notes? That sorry. <laughs> Waluigi though. Waluigi. I think it's Waluigi. It's Waluigi. 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 Oh, that's oh, that's dumb. Well, tell that to Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> now, their their names were. Uh, they actually all had very similar names as well, though. It's uh, Runje, Runde, Runme, and Run Run. And that was a something their dad wanted to do. Uh, the I guess the run part of that means like like vindictive or something like that. It's like <laughs> it's very strange. Uh, but that's cool. I mean, hey, I, well, you see those families all the time, or like all their kids start with their, their names all start with D. Yeah, or they're all like yeah, George Foreman, where all his kids are named George are, are Foreman. George, yeah. <laughs> So by 1934, this is nine years after they founded the studio. And by the way, this, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history of the Shaw Brothers studio. This is a very short Cliff's Notes version of this because they're prior to this, like there's a whole history of them where they, they started out in the, in the opera and the theater. Uh, Like there's a lot of stuff I'm going to skip over because I, we're not going to sit here for like four hours today, but (laughs) we're going to give the, the pertinent, what I consider the pertinent information. Yeah. So. Founded in 1925, fast forward about nine years, and Unique Film Productions is already established as a full-fledged studio. Like, they've got their own sound stages, their own film processing facilities, their own editing bays, screening rooms. They've got office space. Like, they're fully functioning. Plus, they actually managed a chain of movie theaters that were spread all across Southeast Asia. Nice. And uh, they went through a little bit of a weird phase in during the war just to make ends meet or to, to keep... The, the company afloat where they started managing like amusement parks and like all kinds of crazy stuff. Like they were porn. all, they, yeah, they, well, they do, they do maybe, porn. but I don't think that was published. Oh, okay. So, in 1949, uh, Runday officially renamed their operation Shaw Studios, but it was later in 1957 when the, the actually the youngest of them who was at this time about 50 years old, Run Run Shaw, he took over the reins of the studio and ushered the studio into its golden era. Which I mean, for like a family run business, like for those of you who weren't keeping track, like survived World War II, like that's impressive. And, yes. you know, and went on 
much longer. That's yeah, great. Yeah. So, and they were based in, in um, Shanghai originally, but when Run Run Shaw took over, he kind of moved the whole operation to Hong Kong. He bought 46 acres of land in the Clearwater Bay area of Hong Kong and announced the creation of Shaw Brothers Limited. And within a decade being at this new location, they had expanded to have a full editing team, dubbing, special effects and film processing facilities, a dozen sound stages, and a staff of more than 500 full-time writers and technicians. Uh, they, they had people working eight to 10 hour shifts. Like they'd have like three, eight hour shifts every day so that somebody was at the studio working 24 hours a day they almost i mean it almost sounds like they've got enough to like have a college well i mean they i mean it essentially is it's more of like a factory honestly what they're doing because i mean they did have a training school for actors there with with dorms for for actors who were studying there and but they were they were incredibly prolific during this time producing upwards of 40 films a year, which is a completed film start to finish every 10 days, which is insane. Like when I say this is a movie factory, like this is a a movie factory where, I mean, hell, they were even sort of paying some of their people factory wages. That's the reason that Bruce Lee turned them down because they didn't want to pay him very much. They wanted to pay him like $2,000 a movie, I think. So one thing that when Run Run Shaw took over the studio, one thing that he was really focused on was innovating their production techniques. Uh, So, There was another film studio that emerged in the 1950s or so in Hong Kong called the Motion Picture and General Investment Company, which is a title that just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) And these guys, they were highly successful right off the bat. Their films uh, would often kind of embrace American pop culture and American filmmaking techniques, which sort of forced Shaw to innovate. And one of the ways that Run Run Shaw decided to do this was by making filming in color a major focus because there were color films being produced in Hong Kong, but the majority of them, including the ones at Shaw, were being shot in black and white still at this point. So he embraced color and he embraced widescreen cinema, which was something that had never really been embraced in Hong Kong. It had been done before, anamorphic widescreen had been shot before, but it was not something that was being done regularly. He wanted this to be like a trademark of the Shaw Brothers studio. So to help him do this, they actually turned to a nearby neighbor, Japan. So the Shaws already had ties with Japan by this point. They they used a film lab in Tokyo for a lot of their post-production work. And the studio had collaborated with a few Japanese production firms as well over the years. Uh, But most crucially, they began to work with a Japanese cinematographer named Nishimoto Tadashi. So Nishimoto had begun his career in Japan during the war and had served as the assistant director on Japan's very first anamorphic widescreen film, which is a 1957 film called The Maiji Emperor and the Great Russo-Japanese War, another title that really just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) Very catchy. So (laughs) after this is when he first worked with the Shaws on a 1958 film that was actually a Korean co-production called Love with an Alien, which is not about what it sounds like it would be. I was going to say, (laughs) we talked about it before. Are you sure there's no porn? (laughs) Love with an Alien is about, uh, I think it was about a Japanese man and a Korean woman who have like this Romeo and Juliet forbidden romance Uh kind of thing. Yeah. So not nearly, there are no extraterrestrials involved, unfortunately, but he followed that one. I smell a reboot. (laughs) He followed that one up with another movie for the Shaws. And after returning briefly to Japan, where he shot a couple of uh, actually Japanese horror movies, he made a long-term commitment to the Shaws and worked with them 
a lot over the over the years under an adopted Chinese name of Hei Lan Shan. So he was there. He was kind of the Shaw's go-to cinematographer because uh, he was good. He had a lot of experience, and he also had a lot of experience more so than anyone they were working with with uh, anamorphic widescreen. He worked on big budget costume epics for them. He worked on one a movie that's kind of considered their most prestigious film of that time period of the 60s called The Love of Turn. Uh, but he did melodramas, he did musicals, he did spy thrillers, he did sex films. Like he did everything that the Shaws was doing. He he wasn't like just like the guy who was doing a certain genre. He was just their go-to guy. I'm and glad he could, you found all this, Justin. I just want to say, I did not know anything about this guy. This well, was, yeah, yeah, this was... Can I interrupt with a question? I Yeah. No. You, you, anyway, so <laughs> okay, I'm glad you found all... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You talked about the uh, the technical thing of shooting uh, anamorphic widescreen. Was it really was it really that much of a was it really that much of an undertaking to to make? very much so really yeah very much like, so because is it kind of like them shifting from like widescreen to IMAX. Well, no, it's not necessary. It's not just the the shape of the screen. I mean, you had Technicolor and you had anamorphic widescreen. You had Toho scope in Japan. They're they're shooting in that anamorphic widescreen is more than just widening the frame. There's okay. a whole, there's a whole, and it's, there's a lot of technical shit that I don't want to get into. Cause I think it would be boring to anyone who doesn't have an interest in, in film lenses and photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of factors that go into the type of lenses they're using, the uh, depth of field they're able to have their, their, the F stops they're able to use, uh, there's a lot that goes into shooting in that wide frame. That's more than just composing a shot for a wider frame. Uh, like it is more difficult to actually shoot that way. Oh, okay. Um, I just, um, I, w- I didn't know. I was just like, it, it seems like, okay, well, we're just going to have more stuff in the shot then. No, well, we just had the discussion about like on, you know, the dark night where they switched over to IMAX screens and you have to like line the shots up differently, but I guess there's more to it. Than there's that. more to it than just lining up the shot differently. Okay. Same with on IMAX because IMAX is using specific lenses. That's how they get so much detail on the, on the screen. Of course, we talked about on that one, how big the IMAX cameras were. And, and right. there is a lot of information out there that you can find if you dig for it on the technical aspects of what's being done to shoot this way. But it is a, um, I thought I skipped over a lot of it here because I thought it would be boring to most people. No, yeah. that's cool. No, thank you for so, thank you for telling wide me. Widescreen <laughs> lenses are better at catching stray kicks to the camera. Ah. Yes, they're sturdier, and uh, you know sometimes people but get wild with roundhouses. Nishimoto, he he kind of convinced the Shaws of the value of Japanese craftsmanship. So because of him, what the, the Shaws actually started sending personnel to Japan to kind of observe the routines at some of the major studios over there. And the Shaws actually ended up hiring Toho's special effects department to help out on the Love of Turn. Uh, then, but most importantly, to our discussion at least, he introduced the Shaws to anamorphic widescreen. So with the help of, they actually got the help of Toho. Toho, if you're unfamiliar, is an incredibly popular, incredibly successful Japanese studio. I think we talked about it slightly on our um, Lady Snowblood episode, but Toho is, uh, they're responsible for all the Godzilla movies. Yeah, I was going to say, they're responsible for Godzilla. If you don't know him for anything, yeah. He can be Sente. (laughs) Probably, yes. That's a movie. (laughs) That we got to watch. That and uh, Dragon Lives Again. 
But uh, with the help of Toho, he brought their, they had their own version of anamorphic widescreen they were shooting over there called Toho Scope. And he brought the Toho Scope equipment to Hong Kong and taught other Shaw Brothers cinematographers how to film in this format. And he also helped them to secure the services of uh, several Japanese directors, about six different Japanese directors, who together between the six of them shot 30 films for the studio in the late 60s and early 70s. So they had a lot of Japanese filmmakers working for them as well. But these Japanese filmmakers brought with them their own crew members, their own cinematographers, their own lighting staff, like all this stuff. They were bringing a lot of Japanese filmmakers into Hong Kong. Wow. And this kind of whirlwind of productions that this resulted in brought a kind of a new energy to the studio. And so with this kind of newfound energy and the way that they were shooting things, they started announcing at the beginning of their films with trumpets and fanfare that each film was shot in what they called Shaw scope. You've got that big Shaw brothers uh, shield that they ripped from Warner brothers. I was going to say, let's bury WB. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But Shaw scope was not just a marketing ploy. Like it was a very specific way of shooting anamorphic based mostly on Toho scope from Japan, but with its own kind of technical specifics that Nishimoto helped to develop And again, I won't go into it because it's kind of boring, but shooting this way in this new anamorphic format allowed the Shaw movies to really highlight some of their strengths, which were specifically lavish costume and set design, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and Nishimoto, by the way, under his uh, Chinese pseudonym also served as the cinematographer on a couple of Bruce Lee movies, including the way of the dragon and including the original footage that was shot for the game of death. Nice. Uh, He's the, Yeah. Um, yeah, they, you know, it's, it's funny, just, just as a side note, you know, I, I mentioned, I, I watched the commentary with Brizza on this thing. And surprisingly, that guy is like a freaking genius on Shaolin movies. Like well, he technically Giza you know, is the genius. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm just saying Riza is amazing. And, uh, yeah, Gary didn't get my Wu-Tang joke. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, Giza is the genius. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> Um, he talks about, uh, that, you know, when he was growing up, like you know, channel five in New York, like watching these movies, that Shaw brothers logo, just, I mean, you're kind of going to get into this, but just seeing that meant a whole different world of you're movie, right. like right. That, that, that there was just the sets, the costumes, the, everything was just so much more top of the line. He said it was like comparing cornflakes to frosted flakes is how he put it. Mm. Yeah. I actually watched that. I watched that same interview actually this morning, uh, but he is passionate about these films. There is, is. so when next- you hear him in the commentary, he's like, he's like gone to temples, like hung out with yeah. the Wu Tang and the Shaolin. He's serious and- about it, man. Yeah. So over the next 18 years, the studio produced over 700 films of which about 50%, about 350 of those were martial arts movies. Movies like The Magnificent Concubine, The Love Eternal, which we mentioned earlier. And these are direct, all directed by a guy named Chang Che, who was kind of their go-to like big director at this time. And one of his movies was The One-Armed Swordsman during this time, which became the first film to break $1 million at the Hong Kong box office. It was a huge hit. See, you guys will show love for One-Armed Swordsman, but when it comes to Crippled Masters, it's it's not a good movie, Todd. Stop talking about it, Todd. Put your <laughs> pants back on, Todd. Don't mention it every episode, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> so with these films and the success of these films, the studio helped to popularize the genre of the Kung Fu movie 
And this led to fame internationally, worldwide. And of course, that naturally led to interest from American studios. So what happens is some of their titles were purchased by distributors here in the U.S. They were dubbed. They were often re-edited, almost always retitled. And of course, this is before, uh, this is just before like Bruce Lee became a big star, uh, which that, that kind of shows why his movies had the impact that they did because his his style of fighting is so different than what they're doing in these movies. But, and remember of course that Bruce Lee did turn down a chance to work with the Shaw brothers in order to work for their biggest rival, which was at this, at that time in the seventies was a new studio named golden harvest. Uh, Well, and probably, I mean, this is where they're getting the idea that that you could make money doing this. Like uh, Bruce Lee's like the next evolution of it. And then they're like, hey, man, there's a market for this. And go back to China and, you know, like we talked about in Game of Death, like create create your own stuff. And exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, they were making martial arts movies before Bruce Lee, but like he helped to propel just the idea of the the Kung Fu movie into uh, like an international thing. And they, yes, they capitalized on it. I mean, they, they started capitalizing on it before because these movies were already becoming popular, but that did kind of shoot interest up into the stratosphere when, when Bruce Lee came around. So they start uh, they start sending some of these movies to, to America or America's just bringing them in. And the first of these, the first movie to be released in America was uh, director Ch- uh, Chang Ho Cheng's King Boxer, which was given the much more awesome new title in america of five fingers of death which i'm sure quentin tarantino has never seen uh, sure of course on kill bill so after that came a film called seven blows of the dragon which was actually a re-edited mashup of two films uh, by cheng che called the water margin and all men are brothers again seven blows of the dragon is a much cooler title uh, i mean a lot of these original titles are also more direct translations of the original chinese title so they're not as Sometimes they don't really flow off the tongue because they were not meant to be directly ask, translated that way. I'm going to ask you one more time. Five fingers, seven blows, all men are brothers. Are we sure we're not talking about porn? <laughs> Just saying. It's, it's leaning hard that direction, Justin. I'll show you the five fingers of death, Todd, if you don't let it go. <laughs> one at a time. Starting but, with but One thing I did want to bring up, and this is actually, I, I lost my train of thought when I was first bringing it up, but is that you're going to see with Lilo and other stuff in here. I mean, you mentioned the factory aspect of it, but one thing that was like really intriguing to me is the Shaw brothers idea is like, I'll try to make this my only wrestling reference in the show, but it's like <laughs> WWE now has NXT and like, they've got like, they've, they really nailed down like a system. People were under contract and you just worked for Shaw brothers and you went through the system. Yeah. And there's people that are all in this movie that later become, stars in other movies and you'll see like the same actors over and over and over and over again in these and the same directors that's why names like Chang Che come up over and over even in this discussion when we're not even talking about a movie he directed right (laughs) because he just directed so many of them well didn't um like wasn't Clint Eastwood like one of the last few contracted actors here in America did they have sort of a similar system here in the states I mean, they still do that, kind of, don't do they? they? Like, you um, lock into a five-picture deal with somebody or something? Well, it's a little oh, bit different that- the way that it works in, in Hollywood now because a director can have a, a five-picture deal with a studio a lot of times now, but I think they're still open to work with other studios. They just still have to fulfill that. Mm. And sometimes it's a first-look deal often now where mm. a director 
they can bring five films to the studio, but the studio can pass on them, you know, if they choose. Uh, but yeah, back in the back in the like 40s and 50s, especially the, the 40s and earlier, in the when the studio system was very strong in in America, yes, actors did have contracts with a specific studio, and they were treated like shit as a as a result because they had no negotiating power. Well said, Justin. It's much like the WWE of this time, where you <laughs> hey. can sign a contract with WWE and. It's not like you're going to wrestle five matches with us and you're free to work everywhere else in between. It's a, no, you are a WWE person. Now you're an independent contractor, but we, does this count as the the same wrestling reference as you did two minutes Uh, ago? Or I think it's still technically the same. I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to apply it the same way. So you enter it at XT, you work your way up and blah, blah, blah. You can't work elsewhere. Until they not. wish you, until they wish you the best on your future endeavors. Yeah, yeah. Be, but until be care, then, we hold everything about your life, <laughs> including your name, including your face. Uh, be careful talking about the big company like that, Gary. I, I see a little red dot hovering on like your chest, and there's one on your forehead <laughs> you too. Yeah. So, so the Shaw Brothers films were met with a lot of success internationally. They they even had a successful co-production with Hammer Films in 1974 called The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which is a mashup of like a Hammer film and a Kung Fu movie. It's Peter Cushing nice. is in it as Van Helsing. Uh, it I've never seen it. It looks wild. I really want to watch it. That yeah, sounds that, sounds, that sounds like that'd be pretty awesome, honestly. Yeah. With especially like a, a double feature with like Five Fingers of Death or something. Right. Yeah. But then Bruce Lee comes along. So this is all happening before Bruce Lee, but then Bruce Lee comes along and, and ruins phenomenon- everything. I mean, it sort of, it didn't ruin everything, but it changed, it changed everything. Mm. Uh, and that, that phenomenon swept, it swept the entire world. You know, like we talked about that a lot last week, but, and of course it led to dozens of Bruce exploitation pictures that we discussed last week. And Shaw studios mostly stayed out of the whole Bruce exploitation business, even though every other studio in Asia seemed to be doing it at the time. But there was one glaring exception, and that was a uh, particularly tacky 1975 film called Bruce Lee and I. That movie starred Betty Ting Pai, who, if you remember from last week, is the woman in whose apartment Bruce Lee actually died. So that's how they that's now you're talking about exploitation. That that might take the cake right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and most of the footage is handheld. Betty Ting Pai, like actually filming Bruce Lee dying in her apartment. (laughs) 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 So uh, while Bruce Lee's stardom brought a lot of attention and a lot of clout to Golden Harvest, that seemed to only further fan the Shaw Brothers' determination. They kind of wanted to be known as the top producer of martial arts films in Asia. They did not want Golden Harvest to outshine them. So during this time period, when they were really trying to make their mark on things, one of their most prolific and successful directors was a guy by the name of Lau Karloom. So Lau was born in 1934, and he began learning Kung Fu from his father at the age of nine. Uh, he, He was a lifelong martial artist. His earliest film work actually came in 1950. He appeared as an actor in a film called The Brave Lad of Guangdong. Guang, Guang, Ong. Okay. That that second G is with the first syllable. Thank you, Todd. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Much of his early film work involved him being an extra or a choreographer on, this is before the title of fight choreographer even existed, but that's basically what he was. On a lot of early black and white films, from the 50s and 60s that were about uh, a man by the name of Wong Fei Hung. 
And these were essentially cereals, like what we would have called cereals in America, like the Flash Gordon cereals of like oh. the 30s, you know, the Superman yeah. cereals. There was a lot of these about this character, uh, Wong Fei Hong, during this time. Now, not to go on too long of a tangent here, but if you are curious, Wong Fei Hong, you can go down a deep rabbit hole looking into this character. Uh, he was a, He was a real person. He was a Chinese martial arts master and folk hero who has been the subject of over 100 films. I think when I looked on Wikipedia, I want to say there was 123 films that feature him as a character. Jeez. And a lot of these early films, the ones that that Lau was working on, they have names. And again, these are direct translations, so they're a little bit awkward, some of these names. But how Wong Fei-Hung defeated the tiger on the opera stage is one of them. Or how Wong Fei-Hung erased the golden bell trap or how Wong Fei Hung fought five dragons single-handedly, or my personal favorite, Wong Fei Hung's battle with the gorilla. I don't know what it's about. <laughs> I can guess, <laughs> but and I well, want to well, see it. Well, it's also worth noting. I mean, if you're well, when you're talking about this guy, by the way, uh, Lao Carlong, his other name you'll see him listed as in a lot of stuff as Lu Chi Lang. Um, that's his like Mandarin name. Yeah, there's a, a most of these uh, directors and 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 actors have multiple names that they go under. But just to emphasize, I mean, you you kind of mentioned this like he he had trained like he was a, he was a guy who didn't even make it through like regular school. He just like trained in martial arts and he was trained traditionally, like really traditionally. As in to to piggyback on what Justice talking about, his father was a teacher and taught him hung. Ga Kung Fu, yeah, which is also, aka Hung Kung Fu, hung, yeah, or Hung Fist Kung Fu, or Hung Fist Kung Fu. Hung Kung Fu is the only style I've been able to learn personally. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if anybody was going to pick that one up. Uh, I'm not going to miss a dick joke if I can make one. Um, <laughs> but I say that to say that, like, his father was trained by a guy named Butcher Lamb Sai Wing, who also has like a hundred movies made about him uh, because he was a direct disciple of Wong Fei Hung. Right. So Lao is essentially working within, he, he's, he, he is a, as far as training goes, a direct descendant of one of, if not the most famous martial artists in Chinese history. Exactly. So like, like he could, so, you could directly trace his training. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that, it's, it's being able and, to, being able to trace your martial arts lineage is, um, Kind of a big deal. Yeah, right? and, and and if you're tra- if you're tracing it three generations out from a guy who has become a folk hero in China. Oh yeah, like that. That's a big deal. Like and Wong, if you're unfamiliar with that name, you've probably seen him in some movies more recently. Like uh, Jackie Chan's breakout film, Drunken Master, is about Wong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Once upon a time in China, starring Jet Li as Wong, and it's I think it's got four sequels. Um, which began in the early 90s, uh, Iron Monkey, one of Tarantino's favorites, stars Donnie Yen in the role. So there are still movies being made about this character. I, I had a chance to train with my grandfather in the martial arts, and it was quite an experience. But, yeah. I mean, that's a detail of martial arts that kind of gets looked over is the lineage. And uh, it's cool that they have it so uh, so well-defined here. In the 1960s, Lau became one of the main choreographers for the Shaw Brothers, uh, often worked with Cheng Che, who we mentioned earlier as the director of the One-Armed Swordsman, among many others. Uh, One-Armed Swordsman, though, that was Lau's first official credit with the studio. Uh, He worked with Cheng a lot, but they would eventually have a falling out on the set of Marco Polo over, you know, 
quote unquote artistic differences. That old thing's been around for a while, mm. uh, which led Lau to become a director in his own right. That's actually. And, oh, sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean to jump over you here, but the, that's no, actually one of the things I was going to mention is that you know, and this this flows perfectly because he he was the first person in Shaw to jump from like stunts and cinematography or whatever he was doing into directing like right. to elevate himself and i couldn't confirm like the uh or choreography is the word i was looking for but i couldn't confirm for certain the dispute but i imagine that looking at the two of them and i was like trying to trace back their movies and like just get some ideas about what they did and chang che was more violent and doom and gloom yeah in some areas and not not saying that that's a bad style but Lao seemed to be concerned with the art of Kung Fu. And based on what we just talked about, uh, he's, he's concerned with like that master student relationship yeah. theory of learning the process of it. Uh, things that are obvious in this movie and uh, Cheng Che seems like he's not as concerned with that part of it. Right. right. So I'm wondering if that's some, he, if that's it may some very well have, have been. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't doubt that that had something to do with it. So, all right, here's where things get a little muddy <laughs> in the history of this. Uh, when I was making my notes for this, which I send to you guys, you know, that Lyle's first directing credit is a 1973 film called Breakout from Oppression, which was later released in the U.S. under the name Deadly Strike. And that's a film that was his first collaboration with Gordon Liu. But here's where the confusion on that comes in. As I started to look more into this, in some places, IMDb, for instance, you'll see Breakout from Oppression, Deadly Strike, listed as a 1973 release. In other places, you'll see it as a 1978 release, <laughs> which would have put it further into his filmography because by 78, he already had another, a couple other movies already uh, under his belt. My, my best guess was, like, as I was looking into this, that maybe it was released in 73 in Hong Kong and then received its dubbed US release in 78. However, if you go on Wikipedia and look up this movie, it says it has a theatrical run in June of 1978 in Hong Kong. But it also, but Wikipedia also, but Wikipedia also has a separate entry for Breakout from Oppression and Deadly Strike, like as if it's two separate films. So to so further Wikipedia has fallen down, is what you're saying. To, to further muddy the waters, though, Gordon Liu's own website in his bio, his official bio on there, he says that Lau made his debut in 1975 with Spear, Spiritual Boxer, which is a movie that Gordon Liu is not in, but it's a uh, that's a fact that I've seen listed in several other places I've as well. One, yeah. a spiritual Boxer. Spiritual Boxer is also considered the first ever uh, kung fu comedy or martial arts comedy film. Hmm. And to make it even more confusing, as I was looking into this, there is another film called Deadly Strike that's listed as a 1978 release. But that's a completely different film. So I'm wondering if some of these sources are getting that mixed up because of the, they have the same title. That one is actually one of those Bruce exploitation movies. Stars Bruce Lee, L.I. Bruce Lee. Uh, wow. Then there's another film called Breakout from Oppression that was released in 1985, which is actually a completely different movie. It's like a slasher, uh, like thriller, uh, a Asian movie though. But it's nice. a retitling and re-edit of a 1982 film called Exposed to Danger. So the reason I say all this is my point is. I don't think the records in the 70s regarding the release dates on a lot of these uh, these international films were very well kept. And the mm -hmm. record, it keeps... It should have got a it, German. It should have yeah, got a German to keep the records. 
<laughs> well, it makes it a lot harder, I guess, to keep the records when they're being distributed in other countries, like in America, by some kind of shady little studios that are only interested in Cash putting in. them out as exploitation movies and playing them on 42nd Street in, in New York. So they're not right. really, they don't really care about the legacy of the film. Plus, they're all being released under different names. All, oh, I mean, yeah. the movie we're talking about today had at least three different names. <laughs> and then and then you have stars and directors who go by multiple names, two or three different names, you know? Yeah. So it's very, very confusing. So what, what we're doing here is we're wading through all of this information the best that we can <laughs> in the hopes that we're giving the facts as accurately as possible with all of the information. Now, that, that's the biggest bit of conflicting information in all of this. But that's just kind of my disclaimer is that this is the history of these films is very complex. Yeah. We're doing and, the best we can, man. Just, I'm trying. Just, <laughs> just give us a break, okay? This is just a side note, too, but I do want to bring it up in case anybody does happen to be wondering because I did as well. Uh, Bruce Lee and Lau Kar Lung were also very familiar with each other. They worked together. Like he worked with a young Bruce Lee in choreography on a oh, lot cool. of these early movies. Nice. And uh, you can find photos of them together online. Like they, they were, you know, I don't know that they were like best friends, but they were, they were they bros. Were acquaintances. Yeah. yeah. They knew each other. Yeah. So regardless, Gordon Liu is an actor who Lau ended up working with a lot. Gordon Liu was born, not as Gordon, believe it or not, but as <laughs> Sim, uh, Sin Kam Hai in 1955. He was born in the uh, Guangdong district of China. So uh, he was adopted. And after his adoption, his family moved to Hong Kong and he took an interest in the martial arts at a very young age. He would often skip school. It sounds a lot like Lau's. Uh, history, but he would skip school in order to practice Kung Fu, and he practiced at the Lao Gar School, which was run by Lao Chart. So th it was here at this school that Lu learned the famous uh, technique that Gary mentioned earlier called the Hung Fist. And the Hung Fist had been taught to Wong Fei Hung by his father. So that that's, you know, we talked about that lineage. It actually goes back before Wong Fei Hung because he had actually learned it from his own father. Mm. Uh, and Wong taught it to his student, uh, Lam Sai Wing, who Gary mentioned, and then Lao Charm was a disciple of Lam. So, yeah. So, Gordon Liu is also learning at this school that was a part of the direct lineage of Wong Fei Hung. Nice. Yeah. And it's weird because you like you look this stuff up and, 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 and to add to the confusion, like you talked about the muddied waters here. I mean, in some places you can find that Gordon Liu is considered Lao's adopted son, but that is completely incorrect. No, it's more, you know, his brother. Well, it was he. He was a god brother. Yeah. Um. You. you I've seen him. I. I did see a couple of places that called him his adopted son, and but even more calls him his adopted brother. But that's not actually true. So what happened was Gordon became one of Lao Charn's favorite students. He was one of the best students in his school, and Lao Charn soon would become Gordon Liu's godfather, which actually made made Lao Charn's son Lao Kar Lung. The director we're talking about today, he was the god brother of Gordon Liu, but they were very close. Uh, regardless, they were not legally brothers and they were not blood brothers, but they were very, very close uh, throughout their entire lives. So when his god brother Lao Karlung went to work for the Shaw Brothers Studio, Gordon Liu followed along, 
And as with nearly everyone at Shaw in the 70s, he got his first break with the director Cheng Che with a small role in 1974's Shaolin Martial Arts, followed by a film called Five Shaolin Masters and Marco Polo, which I think Marco Polo was released in the States as the uh, the Four Assassins, which again, much cooler title. Yeah. <laughs> So Gordon Liu and Lau would reunite in 1976 with Challenge of the Masters, which featured Liu as a teenage Wong Fei Hung. And then in 1977, they worked on Executioners of Shaolin, which features the character of Pai Mei, uh, which is the char- one of the characters that Liu plays in Kill Bill, although he was not played uh, by Liu in this particular movie. And but the it was their hereditary. <laughs> but <laughs> it was their 1978 collaboration. 36th Chamber of Shaolin that would catapult both star and director to international fame. You you could really uh, hear the affection, like in those interviews with Gordon Liu that you can find uh, where he discusses Lao, uh, even yeah. though he's a, even though it was apparently not returned. Like Liu says, Lao never praised him for anything, only scolded him uh, when he <laughs> fucked up. Tough love, yeah. Just tough love. He said that he knew that going in, though. He said that basically that he knew that like. Lau was going to be very serious about the Kung Fu in this movie. And yeah. uh, you had to be on, you could be good quote unquote at Kung Fu. Uh, and uh, he, he was even, you know, they were both had taught some, uh, but to put it on screen, like in front of the whole world where everybody can see everything you had to be on all the time. And, uh, and Lau Kerlung wasn't like a lot of the directors at the time. And maybe this is tracing back to the chain chase stuff, but he loved long and wide shots yeah so these weren't moves that could be one guy going over and over again until they got it right this was 20 people could be in the scene at one time and they all had to be doing this thing yeah uh, exactly right so like in most places i was looking they said you could like you could stumble into this film one of two ways either you're a fan of film and you're learning your way through kung fu cinema or action movies or you're a martial artist. Either way, you end up at this one as one of the pinnacles of martial arts films. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, from the from that first scene where the dude jumps off the building and tries to attack, I guess the uh, the general or the emperor or whoever he's trying to attack, general, yeah. and that fight ensues. Like right off the bat, I said, "I'm again." You guys know me. I don't really get audible during movies, but. Like I had an audible reaction while I was sitting there watching with Kat of just like, oh shit. She's like, what? And I was like, this movie's taking it to a different level. Like this choreography is crazy. And yeah. it, they are doing stuff here that they are doing stuff here in the seventies that nobody would touch today. I was just like, the closest thing you have is probably the matrix and some of the movies that kind of spawned out of that. But even that was so stylized and a lot of wire work and stuff like that. Like yeah. these guys are doing this stuff. It's, well, it's funny to see like real. some Chang Che interviews and stuff. He would probably have something similar to say about it that, you know, I think in the interview on uh, the Justin, and I probably both watched. I know um, he talks a little bit about computer graphics. Like, yeah, you can enhance things, but it's like, if you rely on it, it's too much. Like mm. it's, he's like, where's the art? Where's the basics? Where's yeah. the, like, and there's a little the bit style. of wire work used in these, but Lau didn't use a lot of wire work. He used it sparingly. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's very effective when he does use it because of that, I think. Mm-hmm. So starring alongside Lou in 36 Chamber was Lo Le, which uh, Lo Lee, who uh, 
Gary mentioned earlier, he played General Tienta. And Lowe was a regular with the Shaw Brothers Productions, having appeared in Five Fingers of Death and Executioners of the Shaolin. He was the guy who played Pai Mei, you know, we mentioned earlier. He was also in the Bruce Bloitation film Fist of Fury 2. So tying it back into last week once again. Yeah. Well, yeah, the reason I mentioned uh, Lowe Lay earlier is just that um, in Five Fingers of Death, like just doing some of the stuff I saw, uh, he was a good guy there yeah. and he was like the main uh baby face good good guy and uh that was a wrestling it, reference gary i know i know <laughs> Damn i tried it. to avoid it but i didn't know another way to say it um <laughs> anyway he was he was the good guy and he uh there were there were some thought that maybe he could be like like bruce lee became what they were hoping maybe with lolay like yeah. they they thought because he had that that five figures of death was like the first widely distributed big time kung fu movie I think the way I read about it in the U S but here he's landed the bad guy role and honestly that's what he's meant to do he's like a Lee Van Cleef style dude he's just yeah. got that face he's got that and, look yeah like that permanent scowl on his face <laughs> and the only way you can make him as a good guy would be what he does later where he becomes the white eyebrowed like kung Pai fu me. master yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and so which is what you know gordon's gonna take up you know eventually too but right. just interesting so wong yu is another one of those actors he played uh it's i think his character's uh, credited as rice miller six in this film <laughs> he was a, another shaw staple and often a appeared alongside Gordon Liu. So in addition to this film, he's in Spiritual Boxer 2. He's in 8-Diagram Pole Fighter. And then my favorite title of any of the Shaw Brothers movies, uh, the 1979 film Dirty Ho. <laughs> okay, that's it. That, that, that's because <laughs> his porn? mom's in We're it. We're just going to gloss that's all. It. That's all it is. His mom's in that one, so he's got a soft spot for it. <laughs> 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 also, side note, oh. I looked up the demon from Hereditary, and it's Paimon. So, yes, th thank you, Gary. We knew it wasn't actually <laughs> Pai Mei. Did I you think you actually was? I, I started to like lose myself. I was like, did they name that Is demon Pai Mei? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to look it up. <laughs> it was by shaving his head to become the Shaolin hero Sante that Gordon Liu really made his mark. Uh, I mean, he he would, after the success of this film, you would often see him with a shaved head. That just kind of became his look, you know. But Sante, Sante was known as Iron Arms because of his muscular physique, which made uh, casting Gordon Liu kind of odd because it was kind of surprising to people because people knew who Sante was. And Gordon Liu is a kind of slender guy, whereas uh, Sante was known to be very big and very muscular. Mm. Uh, but he was a real Shaolin monk who lived in the early 18th century. His, the real story behind him is still a bit of a mystery, but the way that it's told is that he was a son of a tea merchant who took refuge in a Shaolin temple after having to run from the Machu soldiers because he'd killed one in self-defense, and then he would eventually become known for teaching Shaolin martial arts to those outside of the Shaolin temple, which, of course, all that sounds very familiar if you've watched mm -hmm. this movie. Uh, of course, this is a fictionalized account of his life, but it does highlight something that's very common if you look at the filmography of Lao and this, that many of his films were based on real historical figures. Uh, and they often tried to give a true, if exaggerated account of martial arts history. So that's kind of what he's doing here. Like this, he's telling the story of someone who probably to Lao is very important 
as a as a major piece of martial arts history and he's trying to do him justice even if he's you know embellishing things a bit yeah i mean that was that was another thing i I definitely wanted to mention is that he he one of his early thoughts was and i and i was trying here to find the exact quote from him and i I can't right offhand i totally forgot to throw it in here but there is a quote I, i found from him where he talks about that one of his biggest issues early on was that he felt like people were dishonoring the tradition. And so that goes back into my theory that that some of the other stuff could have come into play, but he, he seemed to be very involved in tradition. And so he thought early on that some of the better movies could be made by like, let's take our actual history. Let's take our actual figures in folklore and everything else. And let's tell their story and that sort of thing so he had this like desire to really develop that um one other person we skipped over justin too that i want to mention and uh and and you might have you might have said it and i I missed it totally but the uh knee quang um who was the screenwriter for here i mean oh yeah no i have i have not mentioned him yeah i mean he 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 and lao kerlong uh they they had like a really prolific partnership throughout, and and this guy Ni Quang, who was like a he was like a sci fi novelist in China, and oh. uh, was like for he's got a whole other history. Like he was like a former like functionary of the Communist Party in China, and then like felt like the Communist Party was about to purge all these people, and so he escaped and he went to the U.S. and uh like he he was just but he ended up coming back and he worked for the shaw brothers and he he i mean he wrote like a hundred scripts for them too we keep saying a hundred but like i mean this dude was like pumping out uh stuff um but he he wrote a lot for cheng che or cheng chi or however we said it i can't remember now um and then he ended up becoming really good buddies with lao Kerlong and wrote a lot of his stuff and uh i mean it, you're talking about like I, I just just to give you an idea i mean he's 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 got a huge collection of scripts that he wrote for kung fu films like five deadly venoms eight diagram pole fighter house of traps five element ninja boxer for shang tung shaolin martial arts black magic dirty ho executioners from shaolin crippled avengers invincible shaolin just heroes it's, it's he's just all like Everything. that's what yeah. he does yeah, but anyway, he's also he's the screenwriter that uh, Lau gets for this movie. Yeah, I mean, he's his his filmography. He literally has over two hundred credits on on IMDb. It's sort of insane. Yeah. Before we move on, um, just to kind of reiterate for the audience, um, part of the reason that this lineage and teaching uh, techniques and stuff to outsiders was such a big deal in these films and in real life is because kind of along with the plot of this movie, um, you see them sort of uh, standing up to the government, which history of late has shown uh, is can be good, can be bad. And it's, it's, you know, it's, and it's big and it's dramatic and a lot of things, uh, a lot of things come from the ripples of in the, in that water. But a lot of times when the government was fighting these uh, temples and bands of rebels, they would learn these techniques and they would learn the lineage and they would become part of that history. But when the government would overpower, not only would they kill off the, the fighters and their families, 
but they also destroyed a lot of these records and destroyed a lot of the history, which is why lineage is so special yeah. and so um that's how it was passed cherished down. yeah because there's not a lot left right. well um, it's funny you say that because i mean the santa myth or you know whatever is uh is, is is essentially that that like he was the guy who went to the because supposedly yeah the mongolians took over the area and mm-hmm. you know these smaller villages and that sort of thing and it's funny i because i've seen the movie twice now um recently where like if you watch the dub version they call them the tar tar tartans or tartars or something like that mm. they call them that but in the dub version it's called the mongols and uh but it's apparently like the tartars are like a sect of the mongols that like eventually like when they took over this like, an area they took over and they just worked with the mongols and anyway it, it, there's a deeper history here like if you want to dig really into it it, it goes back to how we've been talking about all these movies. It's just like how the, like back to Lady Snowblood, just like how intrinsic the historical right. themes are in I, these movies. But And we're doing a good, we're, uh, Justin and Gary have clearly put in a lot of research. I just kind of want to reiterate to the fans that if you're finding this stuff interesting, seek it out because really we're only scratching the surface here. Oh, absolutely. There's it's yeah. so deep and <laughs> yeah. really fascinating. So, oh, yeah. well, and, and I, I wanted to say just, just for what it's worth. I mean, the, the thing with Riza is like, I had never delved deep into like, obviously we all know Wu-Tang and all of that stuff, but I've never delved deep into like why they're the Wu-Tang and their thoughts of these things and like how deep that knowledge is. Um, but Riza, I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the members of Wu-Tang is named after this movie and their first album is named after this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, master killers like it, uh, he, 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 uh, you know, they talked about that. Like he took that name because he felt like he had to go through the 36 chambers. Right. To, like, he had to prove himself because he was, he was younger than most of the other, he was like the last member of Wu-Tang to join. So he kind of had to prove himself. So he took the name master killer, which was the name that this movie was released as in the U S there's a thoughtful aspect to the way that Riz, Riz like describes this stuff that like he, he talks about for him and, and, you know, again, three bearded white dudes. We get it. I'm just saying this is from him uh, as a black kid growing up in New York city that like he and ODB would go and like drop like as much money as they could to stay in the theater from like open to close to like watch these movies. And even when everything started to switch to porno, they'd go through two porno movies just so they could get to like a cool Kung Fu movie at the I end. I think when he actually watched this specific movie, it was like, two porn movies and then this movie so well, like in order- well he said he said the first time he saw it was like on channel five like he had seen it there and he appreciated the moves like they would all like his whole neighborhood would see it and they'd be like let's go they practice go these moves pretend yeah <laughs> yeah and then he's like and then he like got a little older and then he's going to the movie theaters and then he hears like certain things they're saying and then it goes a little further and it's just like i gotta watch it again because there's some like ideals they're right they're going for here and so like it actually became like he describes it like that 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 in this very movie like the idea of there's this authority figure out on the street and sometimes it's unfair to you and yeah it's like cracking down on you and and all of that stuff and then he's like he's like all i knew was black culture 
And that goes so far back as to we were slaves one time in the US. He's like, I never heard a similar story, like in a different yeah. place. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like this, it, it was this whole other world to me. When he kind of describes the film, he says that he felt like, and this is an actual quote from him, he felt it awakening a sense of social justice and historic awareness. And in particular, he was struck by Gordon Liu's struggle, by Asante's struggle against an oppressive government. He, and he said in, an, in the same interview, he says, as a black man in America, I didn't know that story existed anywhere else. So that, like people, you know, people know the surface level reason of why like Wu-Tang is uh, so enamored with like this movie, but and it goes much deeper. Th that's true. Uh, but it, go <laughs> it goes much deeper than just like thinking Kung Fu fighting is cool. Like this really means something to, to Riza. And yeah, it was, it was so incredible to watch that. Uh, on a, it's, on a, it's much a, deeper. It's much deeper than just the aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just, yeah. we like watching dudes fight, like, yeah. which is fun, but there's a, there's a much deeper meaning to all of this now granted i you know in some other interviews just for what it's worth he said they did start to incorporate uh some of the slang it, it this stuff into their slang so he said it's, instead of saying a girl had big tits we'd say she was in the big titty chamber <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna use that on my wife and see what she says <laughs> So when the 36th Chamber of Shaolin was released in 1978, it was a big success. One of the Shaw Brothers' biggest earners to date, bringing in $3 million at the box office, although they couldn't quite match the success of Jackie Chan's Drunken Master, which made like $7, seven million almost, which only, of course, served to further the rivalry between the Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest. The film found even greater su success when it was released internationally. In 1979, it was released as Master Killer here in the U.S. And, of course, like many of the films of this era that weren't released by major Hollywood studios, especially exploitation films, films that showed down on 42nd Street, uh, reviews from the time are hard to kind of hard to come by. But it's considered by most modern film critics as one of the greatest kung fu films ever made. I do have to wonder, though, if there are some Internet reviewers who might think otherwise, Gary. Well, Justin, you know, as always with most movies, uh, somebody needs a nap. <laughs> I went into this. You might have noticed that my lead in there was a little less enthusiastic than normal. Um, it's because I, I said this before about Snowblood, I think. Mm -hmm. But this more so than any. Like you go on IMDb, search one star reviews out of the thousands, there is not a one star review. There nice. is not a two star wow. review. There it's is not a three slaps. star review. <laughs> There's it's like you gotta get to like five stars before you get anywhere. Um luckily I there's Amazon. We're the lowest of us venture out. <laughs> so there there are a few, but it's all terrible. Like here, here we go. Here's uh, Je Jeffrey Staples says not worth the effort. That's it. That's what? it. That's all he had. <laughs> Lady <laughs> Gemini says terrible acting, worst ever dubbing of English into the actor's spoken language. Never finished the movie. Ithaca says utter rubbish. This is the length. <laughs> these of are very. These. <laughs> yeah, these are the lengths of these reviews. So these nap people. But this one, this is my. 100% my favorite review I was able to find, and it is from a person whose name is listed as 
Palmetto State. Uh oh. <laughs> Damn it. Come on, South Carolina. And he said, I couldn't understand anything they were saying. Was he watching the um, original Cantonese language track? I mean, I Windows? certainly hope at least we could give him credit for that. <laughs> realize they're speaking another language. But it's just, oh, man. That was literally the review. One out of five stars. I couldn't understand a word they were saying. Well, I, I can, can I contribute? A, I'm a, moving. Can I'm I contribute kidding. a couple? Please, please do. Because he, here's one from Letterbox, one and a half stars. Oh, I should start looking at Letterbox. Yeah, one and a half stars. Uh, it says the 36 Chamber of Shaolin was a rough watch for me. The opening 30 minutes or so, or up to the point when Gordon Liu's character enters the Shaolin Temple, was awful. I couldn't believe any of the drama. The acting was dreadful, and couldn't sell the drama. The sound editing and mixing was distracting. The editing painfully jarring. It's just a rotten and sober time. When Lou finally enters the Shaolin Temple, though, the film thankfully improves. Gone is the poorly done seriousness of the first part of the film. A new light and playful tone replaces it all. It's a good time. Training montages are pretty great in this. So are some of the physical jokes. And then the pacing starts dragging again. Out of all my flaws with the film, that is probably my biggest, the pacing. It drags for most of the film, but becomes rapid in the last 20 minutes, leaving no time to breathe and things just happen because it feels like the film ran out of time and it's quickly going through all the story beats to play catch up, giving an extremely anticlimactic ending, maybe the most anticlimactic ending I've ever seen. I'm unsure if the nostalgia goggles have clouded my judgment on Kung Fu films or if I just didn't like this one in particular. I sure hope it's the latter. I actually, let me say this. I can relate to that review. Like, yeah. I feel like I can empathize, empathize with that reviewer. What it is, is the best thing I heard, and this goes back, this may date back to our Lady Snowblood episode, um, but there was a review or something I heard somewhere where they mentioned that early Kung Fu films, especially, maybe it was Game of Death, because they were relating it back to Peking Opera, which we mentioned in Game of Death. They were yeah. like a lot of these movies spun out of that era of history for these people. And that was a, it was like a, oh, Todd, this is where I was going to mention. It's like Anthony Rapp in Discovery. It's oh. like, he's a, he's obviously a Broadway star, right? Like he's, yeah. there yeah. is a, a lot of these movies are very melodramatic. A mm. lot of them have like, there's the, the review where I was going with this is the review I was mentioning talked about, like you have to view these more as stage productions than actual movies. Sometimes that the way they're produced, like it's an evolving art form, but the Peking opera where a lot of these places, these things came from, it was, you know, stage production. And then mm. they're getting onto screen, but the, it's it's still at the they're playing to the back of the theater right and uh that sometimes it takes a little while before things start to evolve into regular realize, cinema. Hey, the camera the camera's the camera's right in front of you it'll pick up your nuances just yeah but anyway, i thought that was interesting because I'm, I'm looking at this one and uh and like maybe maybe like some of the stuff is emphasized more maybe there's this expectation that you're just following there there are weird moments where it's like uh, like when uh, Sante injures his leg and he's like struggling along there and uh, all of a sudden he like first gets injured when he's saving his 
or his brother like sacrifices himself for him to get away. And then all of a sudden, like now his leg looks like it's about to rot off. Yeah. In the next scene, he's like on crutches already. And it's it's like, it's been months or something, you know, like it's like time's passing and it's very, just kind of like jumping to the next. Yeah. There's not, there's not a great sense of the passage of time. I will say I, cause I, there were a couple of elements of that last review you read that I, um, that are like, oh, okay. Cause um, you know, I'm watching this with my wife, Kat um, at one point she was just like, God, how long is this movie? How many chambers are we going through again? And I was just like, well, title says 36. Well, what's I'm crazy like, oh, is this Jesus. <laughs> but she also, she all, you know, one of the things that I saw that I was, that I was kind of disappointed with was his very final battle with the very last guy in the movie. I felt ended kind of abruptly and we didn't have a chance for it to really sink in and i was like oh it would have been kind of nice to sort of you know get to to get that shot to of, of him like i i did it i won but then it just it cuts back to it cuts he's back just to, training at the temple yeah he's like he like gives him a nice shot to the head and then he's training at the yeah, temple and that's it so i kind of i I see their frustration. I see where they're coming from on that. I, I still love this movie. It's a great movie. Like, it does end in a freeze frame, which is yeah. kind of odd, but it does end in a freeze frame of him uppercutting a guy right in the dick. So <laughs> that's fair. fair. Well, well, so, so this goes back to, don't get me wrong. I think this movie is like from, from fucking karate kid to the empire strikes back to every, to the matrix to like every, fucking movie that even tries to touch kung fu from this movie on it's all because of this movie like they mm-hmm. all look back at this movie the training montage and it's still some of the coolest stuff but lao Karlong understood more about storytelling i think than most at the time and he was f- uber focused on that and so i think that he was so this is even more adding to my theory that uh, what was Cheng Che um, before that he thought it got it more into the violence aspect of martial arts. It got right. into the chopping people up and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, it's like your hands and your body and you're just incorporating like monks aren't like monks aren't what you think of when you think of monks most of the time. Like they're, they're not all like Catholic priests or like sacrificing themselves for everything. Um, there was this like aspect of monks that he appreciated that there were like, they're, they're knowledgeable. They know there's more outside of this, that fighting is, is this last resort, but also they have this like view of fighting. Um, you don't have to be the biggest and strongest. Like you line yourself up with nature with the world and like your style like your movements will just when it works in accordance with everything else you can overcome anything and anyway i feel like i'm rambling but the point is is that he had a value for the art side of it so that was like his focus in this movie right it, it makes me think of what we talked about with game of death with what bruce lee's original intention for that was which was he wanted to showcase the philosophies behind jeet kune do and i feel like what lyle is doing here is kind of similar where he's using the film to showcase the philosophies like the more about more than just fighting but also the true style of martial arts you know yeah and i think i and i you know 
to be honest, even the open credit credit sequence, like if you don't realize that each one of those rings on Gordon Liu's wrist are extremely heavy and yeah. counting all of them, like as soon as I, we sh- we saw that, like my eyes just went huge and cats like, what's the deal? I was like, you don't know how heavy those rings are. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's that, something what that he's Lau doing did. is really impressive. Dude, Dude, I'm working out right like now and I do like circular arm motions, like at the finish of weightlifting. And so like I'm holding my own arms out, trying to like mm-hmm. circulate. The, you yeah. don't realize how hard that can fucking get oh, sure. right. for a little while. And it's like, this is your arms. That's just the things that are always hanging there. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, well, Lau would often uh, showcase, like, a, have like a martial arts demonstration almost at the beginning of his films. Yeah. That was kind of a signature of his. Uh, but I think that's that's what Gary's talking about. Really, is part of what makes the Thirty Six Chambers stand out from so many other kung fu movies is because Lau, like, he he was making a movie that was about all aspects of kung fu. It was just about the philosophy as much as it is about the physical side of it, if not more so. That, that's a lesson that Sante has actually learned throughout the film, you know, that this is more about just learning to fight to get revenge. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a beautiful part of it, man. It's it's yeah. this idea that like he, yeah, a hundred percent. Like he goes through this thing and he he starts out as a guy seeking revenge, yeah. but his perspective expands throughout that he's like, no, it's not just about me getting revenge. It's about like if the people could know this art form, if the people could learn this thing, um, then we could protect ourselves. Like we could, we could be better as people <laughs> and like, right. you know, yeah. and, and so, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I think, I think that that's what Lau's looking for here and it can be less exciting. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like it, it can be. And, and even, I mean, we talked about in game of death when Samo came in and is trying to, choreograph the fight scenes in game of death for the stuff that bruce lee didn't already film bruce lee was the next evolution out of normal kung fu films but also bruce lee wasn't into the next stage of kung fu films as they were at the time in 1978 by the time this came out this was more traditional even at that time because Kung Fu films has started going into close-up shots and like just really getting action packed and faster and more yeah. movements mm-hmm. and just as much as you can do in one scene mm-hmm. and like violent. And it was just, they, so even with game of death, like we talked about last week, you, you had to, they were trying to make that movie line up like what Bruce Lee was even doing at the time line up then. And so this movie was actually kind of an outlier in 78. Well, Lau also in, insisted shooting his fights at regular speed because a lot of the Kung Fu directors at the time would shoot their fight scenes sped up. But he insisted on doing it at regular speed so you could see it as it was actually happening. And he insisted on long takes as opposed to fast cuts. And to me, I think that's part of what makes this movie really stand out is because you see this amazing feat of choreography where you might have 10 or 20 dudes all fighting at the same time and all doing different things. And it's sort of incredible to watch. Yeah. I mean, that's the stuff I was talking about before where like Gordon Liu's like telling you, like, I mean, just to see interviews with him now, he's just like, yeah, I get it. He's like, it's, we've advanced and computer graphics can do so much and all of that stuff, but it's just, you know, what 
a lot of these people still like where's the basics where's right. like the yeah. you've learned the art you know what you're doing like there is a there's a system to this there's a reason you're doing this and that sort of thing there's there's a traditionalist aspect of it that you have to appreciate there's, with it there's still no substitute for the martial artist right, <laughs> right. it just there isn't not yet <laughs> One thing that this movie does that's so interesting that gets talked about a lot in, in these reviews is the fact that, you know, in a lot in a lot of movies that have like a training montage like Rocky or or even, you know, something like a thriller that we talked about, like the training, it's not really a montage in that, but it's cut throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, or in a lot of movies, it is just a, a five minute montage. In this movie, it's an hour of the movie. An hour of the movie is literally him training. That's the bulk of the movie because that's what the movie's really about. It's not about his revenge. It's about him learning. Yeah. Uh, and it's super in- entertaining to watch because each of these chambers is visually very interesting. Uh, they're they're all different enough. They're all some of them are funny. You know, my favorite is the um, I think it's the uh, the the brain trauma chamber i think yeah, I think yeah is what it's head headbutting the sandbags <laughs> yeah that uh but you know they're they're very fun to watch and some of them are and they are often very funny and you know without the movie being remotely like a comedy like it's they're entertaining but it, it just it and it ramps up and ramps up and you know some of them are like the one with the buckets like my arms hurt watching that yeah <laughs> you know oh, yeah. Dude, not only because yeah, I mean, again, lifting weights, like, it's insane. And then they have blades. Uh, I just noticed the first time through, yeah, like, yeah. it's yeah. it's going to stab you and yeah. lower your arms. Like, that's fucking but, nuts. Yeah, but just to, to just pile on with what Justin was saying, you know, him in the temple really is what the movie's about because, and we've, we've mentioned The Matrix a couple times already in this episode, but to go back to the first thing... Um, that the Oracle tried to impart to Neo know thyself. This guy goes to this temple with, I'm going to get revenge for just me, you know, but at the, you know, towards the end, it's like, no, Hey, we need to, we need to broaden our horizons. Like my family wasn't the only one that was attacked and killed. Like this is happening a lot to a lot of people. We need to expand that. And he can't, he can't, he can't journey outward until he journeys inward until he knows himself and has that understanding of it's not just it's more than just running running across the log it's more than just you know taking the stick to the blade it's more than all this stuff it's there's a there has to be a journey inward before you can express it you have to know yourself before you can take that stuff to other people and that's the journey that we're really that we're really watching uh yeah we spend a lot of time with him before he gets to the temple which to some of the reviewers is too long, but I think you need that to really see who this guy is before he begins to change. And that's one of the big things about, you know, character development. Yeah. Character development in any sort of narrative, your main character is going to go through a big change. And that's what this, that's what this whole movie is. And it's awesome. I love it. Well, one of my favorite stories like coming out of it is, uh, you know, what interview with the uh with Riza that I saw like people were uh that he got to ask the question um did you ever meet Gordon Liu and he was like well he's like I did a movie called uh Man with the Iron Fists yeah. and he's like Gordon Liu does a small part and he was like but he's like I went and met Gordon Liu and I wanted him for this movie and he did not want to do it 
had he's like, and I didn't have a Quentin Tarantino budget. <laughs> and so he's like, so I was talking to him and uh, he said that Gordon Liu was just like, what, why, you know, like asking him the question. And he said, and Riza says uh, that uh, he told him his favorite scene um, in the movie saved his career that like he had failed as a rapper uh, and he had legal troubles like on his way up. And, uh, and he said, but for some reason, his favorite scene in the movie, 36 Chambers of Shaolin was Sante's battle with the monk with the two swords where he has this new device or like right uh, before that, you know, he has the staff, I guess is what he had. The triple, the yeah. triple jointed staff. Yeah. Yeah. But he says like right before that, the first battle, and he says that it's an antagonistic monk, uh, Hoi Sang Lee. He says, he's like, your fight with Hoi Sang Lee. He said, you lose. And he said, Sante had a plan to beat that man, but that man countered every single move. And a lot of times in our lives, we don't really invest in our losses. Uh, but Sante takes the loss, meditates on the defeat, and then finds a solution to beat that man. He said, you know, he told him, he said, so, so that scene changed my life. And it was like, that was the Abbot. And he was like, and now you're the Abbot and you can bring that character to a new generation of people. And then he said, and I showed him that in my script and he was like, okay, I'll do it. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. That's cool. And Gordon Liu is incredible to watch in this. I mean, he's a, this may, I mean, this movie made him an international star, but, not on the level as like a Bruce Lee, like nobody was really ever on that level until Jackie Chan was probably the closest that came a few years later. But I think if Gordon Liu had been able to get over the language barrier, which I think was the, one of the biggest things that Bruce Lee uh, that helped him uh, become more internationally known. I think that he could have been pretty close to that kind of stardom, honestly, because he is very charismatic to watch and he's very fun. He's, he's a, forced to be reckoned with when you see him fight but he is also very good as like like the physical comedy stuff that he does in this movie you know is really good and and that's going to go even further into the and when you get to the sequel of this movie because this this movie did it did spawn a couple of sequels uh, which i guess this brings us in and that's a good segue into this new segment with the uh, very boring title of further viewing <laughs> but further viewing for this movie obviously return to the 36th chamber from 1978 or disciples of the 36th chamber in 1985 both directed by lao uh return to the 36th chamber though i watched this week and it is a it is the texas chainsaw massacre 2 <laughs> to 36th chamber of shaolin like it is a tonal 180 it is a comedy a director happens. like writes his own parody. It's it basically it is. I mean, and it's like Sante is in the movie as a as a minor character, but the main character is this like con man who's kind of conned his way into the uh, the Shaolin Temple as a way of uh, like he wants to. At first, it's like he's imp actually impersonating Sante, but then he gets into actually try to learn. 
but that con man is played by Gordon Liu. He doesn't play Sante in this movie. He plays a completely different character. Some other actor plays Sante. So it's, it's it could be a little confusing, I guess, if you didn't know that, but it's worth watching. It's not nearly as good as the original, but Gordon Liu's, uh, his physical comedy in this, like in his facial expressions and stuff, like he's it's very over the top and very, very funny. Like he's a funny comedian, uh, which I would not have guessed by watching anything else that I've seen him in. It seems like that 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 Lau like has like a affinity for comedy in this movie as yeah. well. Like, I mean, he he clearly has like an eye for it and like he he cares about it. And maybe he looks at life that way, like that just there's these funny aspects of it. Um, I don't know. I would well, throw in Five Fingers of Death in this. It's on Amazon Prime. You guys, can yeah, watch Five it. Fingers. I I have to throw in the Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, also directed by Lau, nineteen eighty four. I had never seen this one before. I texted both of you guys when I finished watching it because it blew me away so much. It is, I mean, 36 Chamber is, you know, it's sort of the pinnacle of these movies to most people. I'd say the Eight Diagram Pole Fighter is a better film even. It is. Wow. It contains, it's it's, it's a lot more. It does now, as far as, it's it's much, it's a little more fast paced and it does have a lot of the like gore and stuff that Lau was sort of, trying to not do in this movie you know the blood and guts aspect not that it's super gory but it's definitely bloodier than this movie but it has some of the best fight choreography if not the best fight choreography that i have ever seen in a movie it is insane to watch like i i was watching the movie half the time with like my jaw just on the floor watching like these are human beings doing this these things with their bodies and it's wild to watch the the finale the final fight in it which is probably about 10 or 15 minutes long is one of the most amazing feats of choreography i've ever seen wow that's yeah. cool I'd, and, I'd, I'd, is that is that on uh prime or i watched or? it on amazon prime yes prime? is where i watched it yep so pretty easy to find. Uh, Amazon also, Prime trying to be your go-to spot for kung fu action. There's a lot of good stuff on there. There's a lot of stuff on between Amazon Prime and Netflix right now. There's a lot of these Shaw Kung Fu movies. Nice. And oh, I, nice. I would also have to probably say uh, other fun ones that kind of tie into what we've talked about today are Drunken Master, you know, which is Jackie Chan's first movie, the movie where he played uh, Wong. And that was directed by Yoon Wo Ping, who's another very legendary Kung Fu director he, and fight choreographer. He was the fight choreographer on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and The Matrix, but he directed that movie. Uh, but also Drunken Master 2, which came out in 1994, was directed by Lau. He directed the follow-up to that movie. It was released in the U.S. as The Legend of Drunken Master in about 2000, after we kind of became aware of who Jackie Chan was, thanks to Rumble in the Bronx both of which are fun movies and, and definitely worth watching. Nice. Uh, Lau, unfortunately passed away a few years ago. I think in 2013 he passed away. Uh, so, but, but his last movie came from 2013 or I'm sorry, 2003. Uh, he had directed drunken master two. And then he actually directed drunken master three as well, which I have not seen. And then a movie called uh, uh, drunken monkey, which was a 2003 <laughs> film that was the, actually the first Shaw brothers movie to be released in, like 20 years because they oh, wow they they kind of succumb to the pressure from golden harvest golden harvest after in the wake of of bruce lee's stardom became like the premier studio in hong kong and shaw brothers had a few years earlier established a, a tv studio so they kind of ceased film production and just focused on the television side of things mm. 
I I, uh, I laughed a little bit when he said that, just only because uh, one of the funny things is like, uh, I guess for another recommended viewing, I will say like if you get the DVD version of uh, the Thirty Six Chambers of Shaolin, there there's a commentary by uh, Andy Klein and and Riza on it, and you know I've, I've referenced it, but Riza is it's just it's insane the amount of knowledge that that guy has about these kinds of movies. And so like every scene, and I did not jot all of these down and bring them all up, but he is constantly like, well, all right, that guy, you see that guy, he's in drunken monkey. Like he's <laughs> yeah. the drunken monkey. Like he's the guy. And like, yeah. He's like, this is him in his first Shaw movie. And then this guy, he directed this movie. And then like this guy, he, he can like point them all out to you and tell you like what each person did and like their wow. whole filmography. It's, it's well, one, one thing that we haven't mentioned a lot, uh, or I don't know if we've mentioned it all, is that Lau Karlung not only was a director, but, you know, we talked about him being a, a martial artist first and foremost. He appears in a lot of his movies as well. Like he's in, you'll see him in a lot of his movies. He's actually the lead in Drunken Monkey. So he's in a lot of these movies as a performer, as, as more than just a director. And of course, Gordon Liu. Uh, he would appear, you know, he'd keep appearing in movies after this. His roles kind of got smaller as he got older. Uh, he's in, he's also in Drunken Monkey, <laughs> but he, uh, he, of course, he appears in Kill Bill as both Johnny Moe and Pai Mei and Kill Bill 1 and Kill Bill 2. Uh, but he he did have a uh, a stroke in, uh, I want to say 2012 or so. He had, a, he had a stroke, which left him pretty debilitated. And he... Um, I know he was speaking with a slur for a number of years. He is confined to a wheelchair and living in a nursing home these days, which is super sad uh, for a guy that is in such physical peak condition. Every time you see him in a movie to now be a guy who literally can't even walk on his own. It's, it's kind of a tragedy. Yeah. Um, I'll do my, uh, my recommended viewing. Um, I mean, it's kind of, it's a lot of stuff we've already kind of mentioned. Um, you know, the man with the iron fists, that's, that's what I'm going to go end up watching before this weekend's over. Hopefully. Um, You've not seen it, right? I have not seen it, but right. I've, I remember when the trailer came out and I was yeah, like, Dude, that looks dope. And it was, it's been on my list for a long, long time. So you see my... Russell Crowe try to do Kung Fu. <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> I was sold already. Now I definitely want to see this. <laughs> it's um, fun. It's not like a great movie, but it's, it's worth checking out, you know? And uh, I mean, you guys know, I tend to focus on more of the characters and the, the story and, you know, some of the, you know, I tend to read between the lines of some stuff. I'm going to challenge everybody to go back and watch the matrix again and really look at the never heard of the, it yeah yeah it's little little known sci-fi martial arts movie the matrix um sure. uh and just look and look again at the stuff that uh that the oracle is telling him and watch his watch his character journey and his self-discovery also um and this will probably get some laughs but bear with me if you say drunk if you say crippled masters you son of a bitch no you did <laughs> no um no uh honestly there is a crippled avengers directed by lao yeah <laughs> um but honestly watch kung fu panda it's in terms of the self-discovery and teacher-student relationship there's been few instances that i've found that are as simple and pure as that one so find it it's 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 a good movie anyway uh but really 
watch watch what's happening there really pay attention to those character beats and watch that narrative unfold in terms of self-discovery and what that means for those characters well look i mean i i I agree with you i I don't think that movie's a bad movie by any means uh but but yeah i mean that's that's what i was saying earlier that like you go all the way from karate kid to empire strikes back to kung fu panda this this dynamic is reused over it over and over again and it's not even like rocky where you get a montage you know like it just did i think brought up rocky earlier but it's like this is what the movie's about like you said like it just it's about the just that's learning to be better yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah all right guys so next week we're gonna have our sixth and final film well it's not our final episode of this series but the final and the six films that we're discussing the the final is really uh, more than one movie yeah yeah but the the (laughs) final film in the six movies that we're talking about that that inspired kill bill uh we're shooting forward a couple of years to 1980 although it's we'll talk about it later (laughs) next week but (laughs) it is a movie that uses a couple of movies uh footage from movies that were released earlier but the movie we're talking about next week was released in 1980. Uh, it is a Japanese film directed by, well, it's got two directors. And again, we'll talk about that later, but Kenji uh, Misumi and Robert Houston. It is Shogun Assassin. So that one should be another one that's pretty easy to find for you guys. If you want to join us and watch along, uh, head to cinemashock.net where you can find links to where you can watch Shogun Assassin along with us. And we'll be back next week to discuss that one. Happy for everybody following along and listening. If you've listened to all the episodes, just so you know, we're keeping a track of who has listened to all the episodes. We're sending Justin to your house to initiate a Kung Fu fight with you. Yeah. So hopefully hopefully you've studied. What would your chamber be? What chamber would you be the master of, Gary, if you had to pick one? The big titty chamber, I guess. (laughs) 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 Yeah. This, uh, this, uh, you know, that's right. That's where I'd want to stay, at least. <laughs> Todd, what would you after this? You want to be, uh, you want pandemic. to be the overseer. The over- <laughs> Todd, which would, which, which channel? I'll be the wide eyebrowed guy of the big titty chamber. <laughs> My chamber just, is probably going to be, um, probably going to be the either food or ironic looks at the camera chamber. Just kind of. <laughs> I think Jim from the office was in that one. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's the he's the current overseer. Uh Sifu Halpert. Sifu Halpert, I believe that's, he goes by. Yeah, yeah, that's how you so that's who you have to defeat in order to <laughs> Well Justin, are you gonna answer? Man, I think I would just be in the um drinking beer and watching movies chamber because that's all I'm good at. <laughs> Uh, not gonna win that, cha- that, that chamber <laughs> that chamber comes with a chamber pot that you can just, it, it just use. it's just a couch yeah it's yeah just but a- with <laughs> holes in it so you can just <laughs> i just take a shit right there mm. <laughs> there are no there are no fights in that in that room you just bring a pizza and you're in there's fights <laughs> but it's like over who was the best jedi <laughs> yeah <laughs> shit like that kirk versus picard yeah <laughs> there you go the those are the fights that <laughs> which that obviously shape. is picard i mean that's, yeah, that's not true <laughs> oh, oh, oh all right i'm uh, all right gentlemen to your corners wait for the sound of the bell <laughs> Well, that uh, I guess that's a good uh, way to introduce the fact that Todd, you are just about to record your inaugural episode of 
Computer Resume. Yes. Now, where can people follow Computer Resume if they want to find out when they can subscribe and follow along and listen along? We uh, we are loading up the episodes to Podbean, uh, so you can find Computer Resume on Podbean, and you can hit us up on social media uh, at Computer Resume on the socials. And if you want to drop us a email, it's at Computer Resume Podcast at gmail.com. And using Podbean, I do assume that that means that you will be pushed out to all the major podcasting platforms at some point. Yes, so, uh, I, I wanted to at least have one, maybe two episodes before we officially release it. I didn't want to release it with just the ad that's on there now. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, today, uh, my wife and I are going to be recording our introductions episode where we will basically lay out the game plan our mission statement here's here's what it is it's the cool. it's the it's the uh, little bit of dialogue at the beginning of the original series and next gen episodes of <laughs> the final frontier All right, <laughs> but then so uh my first get my first uh official guest will be uh mr gary horn who's coming on to discuss hey, never heard of him yeah <laughs> he'll be coming on to discuss uh the very first episodes in the timeline which is enterprise uh season one episode one and two broken bow cool yeah well todd where can you personally be found on the internet you can find me at mr todd a davis on all the socials gary i was waiting for you to introduce me hi i'm gary horn and i am available (laughs) to you always on at this is gary horn on all of the social medias and at uh, uh, it's, it's at TIPW pod. TIPW pod. I know it's way less simple, but uh, TIPW pod. This is pro wrestling. You're not confined by the NWA. Not anymore. No, no. we are spread out. Yeah. Spread stay tuned. Maybe the NWA thing's not over. Maybe there's more news to come soon about oh, the NWA. I don't know what you're, you're, you're referring to. But... You're embracing all the all the wrestling. That's that's how, yeah. that's how you look at yeah. it. And I am at Justin underscore Bishop. Find the podcast at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Facebook and at cinemashock.net. Join our Discord and all, buy our merch, you know, all that stuff. Like, rate, review. We're on YouTube. We've got most of our episodes are up there now, right, Gary? That is correct. Every yeah, so. episode's up there. I mean, by the time you hear this, hopefully that's the case. But yeah. <laughs> at the time we're recording this, every episode that officially is released is on YouTube. Yeah, Woo. if you pre- if you prefer to listen to stuff on YouTube, which I know a lot of people do for some reason, uh, all of our podcast episodes will be made available there as well. So come join us there. And uh, you can find links to all of that social stuff at cinemashock.net. So you can find everything everywhere you need to find us. That's our central hub where you can find all those links. So until next week. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys, but you have to get them out of his hand, like really fast. <laughs> Is that your chamber? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the chamber. We got to get taught a new catchphrase. Did you, uh, guys, did you guys see the chamber that had the swastika on the wall? Well, yeah, I mean, the swastika is a, a Buddhist symbol. Originally. Yeah, but it was like, dude. It is like right there. It's like right there. <laughs> These Nazi Kung, Kung Fu masters. Yeah, yeah it's one of the other ones I watched. I think it might have been the eight diagram pole fighter. There's a there's a somebody gets buried in a, uh, a coffin with a big old swastika on it. Jesus. <laughs> Very strange. Anyway, let's get out of here. All right. Man.